So, because you're, you're basically using the skin of your palm to vibrate like a like a drum or a musical instrument. Well, you're trapping air in between your hands. But the sound comes out when it's your it's your skin vibrating at a frequency. <laughs> From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. On today's episode, you're getting a behind-the-scenes look into our creative process. Our editorial meetings don't always involve hand farts, but even hand farts have a past. The history of hand farts isn't very well known, because who would bother to look into it? Well, we would. On this episode, we're telling the story of one man who put the art into fart, though many professionals prefer the title manualist. That's an industry term for hand farter. Not sure it's any better, but they've been knocking around the entertainment industry for almost a century. Speaking of hand fart masters, I'd like to introduce our resident hand fart expert, Eclipse producer Lane Gerbig. Oh man, what a title. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. You, I mean, you work on it. It's true, I do. So it's kind of like, welcome back, perhaps. Welcome back. Yeah, I was, I was kind of hoping you would toot your way in. Oh. Oh, that was a good one. Um, yeah, so <laughs> tell me about what you do here. I mean, I know what you do, but this is for the benefit of anyone anyone who's listening. What do you, what do, you do on Eclipse? Yeah, a little a little peek behind the, the curtain, so to speak. So a big part of Eclipse is archival tape, and sometimes I just dig around on the web and look at old recordings. Uh-huh, okay. You posted... <laughs> You posted a message in Slack the other day uh, that was that was extremely interesting. It was a video, um, and it was a man staring directly into a camera, making fart noises with his hands. He was, yeah. It was this black and white newsreel from 1933 that was crackled and fuzzy in the way that those kind of archival recordings are. Uh, but yeah, like you said, he's staring straight into the camera. He's wearing a nicely pressed suit and he looks very serious, like he should be talking about FDR or the Great Depression or polio or something. But he plays his hands instead. He starts playing Yankee Doodle Dandy. Let's watch the video. Just roll roll that tape. I think this this video is a work of art, like an ideal version of art. This is it. This is art. Yeah, yeah. This is incredible. I want to talk about the video. You were struck by both the date and the unblinking intensity of the stare and also the action that was being performed. But why do you like it? It's just funny. Also, it's 1933, so it's nice to know that that kind of humor like stands the test of time. Uh, and I'd like to imagine people filing into the movie theater, sitting down. Like this is a newsreel, so it's going to be played before their feature film, and that's what they see. They're probably laughing too because it's hilarious. So you felt connected to the past in in across time in this one instant, like it's mm. ninety years later, and you're just like, "Ooh, baby, that still hits." Ooh, yeah. yeah. I like it's like original TikTok content now. I think if we were to post this now, maybe with you know that robot voice over it, like my grandpa 
hand farted in 1933 and then it did that, I think it would I think it would take off. The hand farter in question is named Cecil H. Dill. He's the original manualist. Again, that's the technical term. He's a farmer from Traverse City, Michigan. So how did he end up performing in front of that camera for a Universal Studios newsreel? Lane is determined to find out. That's after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, back to that video. It wasn't just the hand fart rendition of Yankee Doodle Dandy that got me hooked. Part of it was Cecil himself. After the performance, he looked into the camera with his intense eyes and told the story of how he discovered his talent. In the year of 1914, in the month of February, I was coming home from school and my hands got very cold and you're seeing I had no mittens. And I began, of course, pressing them together to get them warm and that wouldn't do. Well, pretty soon I began squeezing them and I was surprised to think that I could make a few different sounds. Well, I wanted to know more about Cecil's life and the full story behind this video. Sound film was relatively new in the 1930s, and the movie industry was just entering its golden age of Hollywood, which makes this video of Cecil's performance even more remarkable. So I started researching. Cecil H. Dill was born October 27, 1900, in Traverse City, Michigan, where he spent the majority of his life. He died there in 1989. He was well known there, kind of a local legend thanks to his musical talents. People also remember him as a hardworking guy and a reliable handyman. So his dalliance with fame was strange because it just seemed like a quick detour in his life. Which made me even more curious how this small town guy ended up in front of that camera. I reached out to the Historical Society and the library in Traverse City and they couldn't connect me with anyone who knew Cecil. So, like any good investigative journalist, I went online. I looked up some city records and searched around on Facebook, and I found one of Cecil's last surviving family members. It turns out, my mutual friend from Chicago went to college with a distant relative of Cecil. Oh my god. So everyone in the Midwest is related, is what I'm hearing. Pretty much, or we all went to the same school. Got it. Related by culture, if not blood. That distant relative connected me to Cecil's nephew and he agreed to talk with me about his musical uncle. I can hum on the comb. If you take a piece of wax paper and put it on a comb, and you go... Gary Seabrook lives in Wisconsin now, near Milwaukee, and he's a retired vascular surgeon. Can you describe vascular surgery? So vascular surgery treats diseases of arteries, so it's a plumbing uh, specialty for the, the human body. And, like his Uncle Cecil, Gary grew up in Traverse City. I went there once on a camping trip. It rained so hard that my friends had to spend the night in their car because their tent was leaking. Later, we saw a porcupine. Anyway, Traverse City is right on the shores of Lake Michigan. And it's definitely a tourist town now. 
Get away from it all in Michigan, the Pleasure Peninsula. The people in Traverse City call the tourists fudgies because they buy fudge at the fudge shop. Fudgies, because they say they walk around the streets eating fudge candy all day long. The Dill family had a farm outside of Traverse City. Cecil's dad eventually opened a restaurant in town where Cecil's mom made dozens of pies every day. Cecil himself did odd jobs there, too. When Gary was born, Cecil was already in his 50s. And Uncle Cecil had life pretty much figured out. The novel part of of Cecil's life is that he created a routine where he had no need for currency. He made the arrangement that he would stay in his little apartment in the basement in exchange for yard work. So that covered his rent. Just down the street was Jack's Food Market and he could get groceries there. And his deal was, I'll, I'll shovel your walk and sweep your walk. And people thought it was a, a fair deal. And this routine Cecil had also covered dental care, medicine, and doctor's appointments. He was very proud of his work. So if you walked down the street, you knew which stores were his because the, he'd, he'd shovel the snow during the winter, sometimes two or three times a day. He would call himself a sidewalk superintendent. He's living this, like, honestly kind of ideal life where he wants for nothing, he does fulfilling work, and he doesn't have to worry about taxes. I've had many different jobs, but, like, none of the transactions have been quite as simple as, I will sweep your storefront, will you give me a shirt? There's something beautiful about that. Yeah, it's uncomplicated. And, of course, Cecil was also known for his spectacular talent. If you asked him nicely, he would play a song for you on his hands. I want to point out that Cecil didn't think his talent was funny. It was music. The concept of musical farce I don't think ever occurred to him. He never saw any humor in it in that way. He viewed it as a a musical talent and, and considered his hands an instrument. In his newsreel, Cecil explained how he managed to practice every day. Just by milking 10 cows morning and night, I could keep my musical instrument in practice and also keep it nice and limber. He could take my hand and and do exactly the same thing with my hand and one of his hands. Cecil would tell stories about his adventures outside of Traverse City. He said he'd played his hands alongside big bands in Chicago and even for movies in Hollywood. Of course, we know about that newsreel where Cecil played Yankee Doodle, but some people didn't believe him. Even his own family was skeptical. We heard these stories about the Universal Studio newsreels, but no one at that point ever saw them or heard them. He would talk about the the expedition to Chicago and Hollywood and kind of these ideas of, you know, becoming a famous entertainer, if you will. My mother, who his sister, tended to sort of think that was all somewhat aggravating. Do you think she was, like, embarrassed by it? No, she was just a practical person, and and in her mind, this was why get ourselves all exercised about either what happened or didn't happen. This is all 30 years ago, and it it hadn't turned into anything. And I I think she was just, let's move on and talk about things that are more interesting. So Gary is told all his life not to pay attention to his uncle's stories. His mom thinks there's no point in telling tall tales about musical hands in Hollywood. After Cecil passes in in 1989, you know, 
Gary grows up, he gets he gets married, he has a kid, he starts his career, you know, he has a house of his own. And one day in the living room after dinner, you know, the TV's playing. I'm sure they're doing dishes in the background or something. And I hear this sound. I mean, I hear it. I you know, look at the TV. I'm like, I said, my gosh. I say, you know, to my wife, I said, that's, that's my uncle. That's Cecil. There on his TV was his uncle Cecil playing his hands. It's a commercial featuring the newsreel that Cecil was always talking about. Gary can't remember exactly what the ad was, but he thinks it was a commercial for a muffler company. It went something like, people do crazy things, but if you're smart, you'll get your muffler fixed with our company. I asked Gary what it was like seeing his uncle on TV. My, my thought was, by George, I mean, this, this whole thing about these newsreels in California and the music and, and all of this, this is all true. After the break, Cecil tells us how he made it to Hollywood. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Back in Traverse City, Cecil had actually gotten so tired of people asking him to perform that he gave up playing his hands entirely. He describes this frustration in the newsreel. Everybody wondered then how I could do it would bother me so much that for about six years I put it away. But then Cecil got some encouragement from a fellow artist. A traveling performer who had heard him play before came back through Traverse City. And that visit changed the course of Cecil's life. Until I met a an old showman had come up to Travers once, and he said, can you do your old novelty anymore, Cecil? And I said, I don't know, but I'll try. And I tried, of course, and it come right natural to me after letting it go for six years. He said, well, if I was you, he said, I would practice it up and see what I could do sometime in the stage when I was in Chicago. So that's exactly what he did. According to a column I found in the Chicago Daily News, Cecil traveled to Chicago in the fall of 1933 to try to make it in show business. He auditioned for radio shows and nightclub gigs, but nothing panned out. That is, until Cecil was introduced to Ted Weems. Weems is a famous American band leader. He's the man who gave jazz crooner Perry Como his start. You probably know Como from literally any old Christmas song. Oh, Frosty the Snowman was alive as he So Ted Weems has a good eye for talent, obviously. So he invites Cecil to perform with his band. They had a big gig coming up at a place called the Walnut Ballroom in the Bismarck Hotel, which was once called the most beautiful dining room in America. Weems told Cecil that if this performance went well, he could become a regular on the show. No pressure or anything. But apparently, according to this article, Cecil took it in stride. Like, he had, like, very good composure. And we've seen him, you know, how he plays. He's very determined. He's very assured. He's calm under pressure. He's composed. So he steps out on stage, and he brings his hands together, and Cecil starts to play. 
He was reportedly the hit of the evening. The crowd was, quote, taken aback by the novelty of it, and people were doubling over with laughter. But I, I want to call back to something that Gary had mentioned, which was that Cecil took this talent very seriously. Like, this wasn't a comedy bit. It's hard to know what Cecil would have, like, felt when the audience laughed. I don't think it was laughing at him. I think it was laughing with him. Or laughing at the surprise of the thing. Like, yeah. You're just like, I've never seen anything like this before. Cecil does so well, he's invited back for an encore performance. All in all, like glowing reviews. Robert Ripley features him in his Believe It or Not column, like Ripley's Believe It or Not. What? That's huge. This is peak Cecil time. Like this is, he's, he's a sensation. He's on the National Farm and Radio Hour. He's performing with other band leaders. So this is his, his moment in the spotlight. So what happens next? Cecil doesn't become a staple performer with Ted Weems. We're not sure why, but we do know that Cecil records that newsreel around 1933 in Chicago. And a few years later, Cecil takes another shot at stardom. He hops on a train to Hollywood. I really wish I could tell you what Cecil's trip to California was like, but we don't know much about what he did there. I'd like to imagine a montage scene where Cecil mingles with movie stars or takes a trip to the beach. But the only thing I could find about Cecil's trip to Hollywood is a write-up in a local Los Angeles newspaper from 1937. It says that Cecil has just arrived in Hollywood, and he's looking for a job in a movie. Or in a restaurant. He was quoted in the piece saying, I won't go to any broadcasting stations for tryouts until I'm sure I'll be permitted to stay long enough to get used to the place and the people. To me, it sounds like he's a bit burnt out from auditions and maybe even a little lonely all the way out there in California. Which, I get, LA is pretty far from the Midwest. The Traverse City Eagle announces his return in 1938, after 10 months in Hollywood. Then, about a decade later, that same newspaper reports Cecil went back to Hollywood in 1949 to give his dream one more chance. He made it through the winter, and then he went home to Michigan where he stayed for the rest of his life. And that's the story of Cecil's brush with fame. But that's not where his story ends. Remember, Cecil considers himself a musician, and I would argue he was a pioneer of his musical niche. I emailed with a manualist named Michael Kiefer, who performed with Weird Al Yankovic, you know, the king of musical comedy. You can hear Kiefer's musical hands on songs like I love Rocky Road, or Just Eat It. Kiefer quit playing his hands decades ago, so he declined a formal interview with me. But he did give some more context for Cecil's work. He first encountered Cecil's playing in a 1977 documentary, which prominently features a clip of Cecil's newsreel. He also confirmed to us that Cecil did try to make a career out of playing his hands though he did mention that Cecil's playing style didn't really impress him. Another famous hand farter was John Toomey, who made his debut on The Johnny Carson Show in 1972. John Toomey and the Colonel Bogey March. (laughs) Toomey didn't respond to my emails, but 
He did talk a little bit about the legacy of Cecil on a podcast about the Johnny Carson show. And he gave credit where credit was due. I was not the first-hand player as such. There was a guy named Cecil Dill that goes way back to the 1920s. He called himself the hand-squeak artist of the world. (laughs) Toomey actually answered a question I had been wondering about a lot, which was, why did Cecil give up his dream? He did get on a, a Hollywood movie short. After he did that, he got kind of big-headed, and they called him again. And he, he said, no, he wouldn't do it because he wanted to be in a feature film. <laughs> you know, you just can't demand that kind of stuff. I mean, really, what we do, this, this music is really goofy stuff, you know, and he didn't even play very well. But to insist upon it being in a in a feature film was just going way too over the top. <laughs> and he was never heard from again, I don't think. Cecil was a go big or go home kind of guy. And this time, he decided to go home. Which doesn't mean he failed, per se. It just meant that he called his own shots. And that's how Gary chooses to remember his uncle. He contributed what he thought was important work and managed to do it on his own terms. And so, yeah, I think he was a, was a happy person. So, Lane, it's been months. You've been, you've been digging in the digital archives, crawling the web, looking for, for people who can make noise with their hands musically. What did you learn from all this? And uh, what, what, what do you think, what does Cecil mean to you now? Yeah, I think Cecil taught, taught us a good lesson of knowing when to quit. And I think... He quit when it stopped being fun. He came back from Hollywood and decided to pivot careers. And I think we can all kind of take a lesson from that of doing something when it brings you joy and stopping when it doesn't. When it feels like an obligation. Yeah. Even Kiefer, like the manualist you you spoke to uh, over email was like, you know, I, I quit this 27 years ago. Uh, and because presumably, you know, maybe it wasn't fun for him either. Maybe it wasn't what he wanted to do. Yeah. There's something here about creating things and enjoying creating things and like quitting when it becomes an obligation. Like don't don't make your joy your job, right? Quit your job when it stops bringing you joy. <laughs> that that's a lesson. <laughs> Cecil did that and then he didn't need to have money ever again. I think you really need the backup plan of not needing to have money for this all to work. <laughs> this is not job advice nor is it financial advice. Lane, thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Lane Gerbig. That's my handle and my name. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, yeah, we'll we'll hear more of you on the show. I'm sure. Yeah, I'll be back. <laughs> I'll play you out. How about yeah, that? play me out. Play me out. Wow, this is really HD stuff. <laughs> On the next episode of Eclipsed, grab your skinny jeans. We're going to the mall. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by Bijan Steven. This episode was written by me, Lane Gerbig, and it was edited by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by me, Lane Gerbig, and Joe Hawthorne. 
Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research is by Caitlin Raffey. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon, and our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are Bijan Steven and Michael the Big Toot Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. Special thanks to Gary Seabrook and Michael Kiefer for their musical expertise. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at eclipsedpod. Thanks for listening. See you next time.